millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone. Today, we have an interview with Professor Sergei Ivanov, a Russian professor of Byzantine studies. We're going to be talking about the relationship between Byzantium and the Rus, and then the later Russian world. This is another belated reward for a Kickstarter backer, in this case listener TK, who has family connections to the Ukraine and was interested to hear more about Byzantine influence on the region. Speaking of the Kickstarter, I now have only three more scripts to write and the videos of Istanbul will finally be done. I then have two more Byzantine stories to produce before the narrative can resume, so the end is in sight. Now let's talk about Professor Sergei Ivanov, our guest today. Professor Ivanov is a Russian scholar who has been studying Byzantium for many decades. He currently works in the Institute of Oriental and Ancient Studies at the National Research University Higher School of Economics in Moscow. He has written several books about Byzantium, as well as contributing hundreds of articles to the field. His areas of study include Byzantine religious missions, the cultural influence of Byzantium on the Rus, Holy Fools, and Constantinople itself. He has also taken part in public lectures and debates on the legacy of Byzantium in modern Russia. To see his full list of publications, visit thehistoryofbyzantium.com, and I've put links up on the page for this episode. His books, Holy Fools in Byzantium and Beyond, and Pearls Before Swine, Missionary Work in Byzantium, have been translated into English, which is excellent news, as have a number of other articles and book chapters, which you can find uh, in his full list of publications. As usual with the interviews I do, I will be butting in in between questions to add some needed context. Since the main source of Byzantine influence on the Rus came through the church, I began by asking Professor Ivanov about the general Byzantine attitude towards converting other peoples to Christianity. Yes, it's a legitimate question because our general notion of mission uh, goes from the Western mission, uh, the missions of Rome, whereas the Byzantine attitude to, towards Christianization was a little bit different because uh, the main engine of this process in Byzantium was not the church, but the state. Uh, which was, of course, superior to, to the church as opposed to the Christian West. Therefore, 
um, uh, Byzantium showed some uh, reserve when speaking of uh, converting peoples beyond beyond political reach. They did. They did Christianized. Uh, they did Christianize Sudan and and Rus, but these are more or less exceptions. Normally, they were interested in such conversions which went hand by hand with, uh, well, political subduing this these territories to to Constantinople. I would suggest we've only seen the Roman government make a major effort regarding conversion on two occasions in our narrative. One was the Bulgarians, which we'll talk a bit more about in a moment, and the other was in the 10th century when Melitene and the cities of Cilicia were captured and the Romans announced that anyone who wanted to stay behind would need to convert. We tend to think of Christianity as a religion that actively seeks converts, but this was not necessarily the case in Byzantium. As I mentioned earlier, Professor Ivanov's book about Byzantine missionary work is called Pearls Before Swine, a quote summing up the attitude of some Romans towards giving their blessed culture to barbarian peoples. It was a sort of internal conflict between the universal claims of Christianity and the exclusive claims of Roman civilization. It was the Byzantine monks Cyril and Methodius who played the key role in converting the Slavic peoples to Orthodox Christianity. We covered their story in episode 115 of the podcast. The brothers had begun to develop a written Slavonic language based on the dialect spoken by the people living near their native Thessaloniki. They were then sent to modern Slovakia in response to a request for help from the Prince of Moravia. I want to underline that Cyril and Methodius were not were not converting Moravia because Moravians were already converted by Western bishops. What the Prince of Moravia wanted was the independent, independent liturgy on their own tongue, and this is what uh, that what was provided by the Thessalonica brothers, Cyril and Methodius created Slavic, the Slavic script, not for Moravians. Initially, of course, their goal was the conversion of the Slavic subjects of the empire around Thessaloniki. But by the moment when the script was ready, the Hellenization was going so quickly that it, for, for, from the point of view of Constantinople, it made no more sense to give them liturgy in Slavic language, uh, because it would somehow hinder their uh, their Hellenization. So, um, generally speaking, Cyril Methodian mission in Moravia was a complete failure, because after the death of Cyril and Methodius, their disciples were uh, kicked out of the country, and the Slavic liturgy was abolished. But uh, their disciples went to Bulgaria, and this is the place where the Slavonic um, literacy flourished. And uh, this is the key moment in the emergence of Slavic literature at large. 
Yes, so in typical Byzantine fashion, Cyril and Methodius were given little support for their efforts, and when the Prince of Moravia died, they were ejected from the country by his successor. Independent of any Byzantine effort, the disciples of Cyril and Methodius took their translated liturgy to Bulgaria, where they found a receptive audience. Prince Boris of Bulgaria saw in the new written language a chance to unite his people, as well as win respectability in the eyes of his Christian neighbours. Bulgaria's successful conversion was imitated a century later by the subject of our discussion, the Rus. Prince Vladimir of Kiev also ruled over a disparate Slavic people who he thought could be united by the imposition of Christianity. We covered these events in episode 152. You may remember that Basil II agreed to send priests along with his sister, who would marry Vladimir after his baptism in Cherson in the Crimea. I asked Professor Ivanov about Byzantium's role in the conversion. Byzantium was, of course, the key player. Um, It was the Greeks, uh, generally speaking, Greeks. uh, Of course, many of them were Slavs by by origin, by Greeks, by by their allegiance, political. Um, Of course, it was very, very important for for the history of Rus and for the uh, Rus culture. Um, and for the Rus literature, and so on and so forth. Um, what is um, what is often forgotten is that um, the Greek language was not widely spread in Rus, as opposed to Bulgaria and Serbia. There, um, the Greek language was widely spoken. Byzantium was nearby, they were neighbors, uh, the contacts were on all levels, uh, grassroots levels as well as high level. It was absolutely not the case with Rus, which had always been very distant from Byzantium, divided from it by the huge wastelands inhabited by hostile nomads. That distance gave Rus Christianity the potential to develop in different ways than that of, say, Bulgarian Christianity, which couldn't escape Roman ideas from seeping into their soil. I asked Professor Ivanov about the development of the Rus Church over the next couple of centuries and how it differed from Byzantine models. We should always bear in mind that uh, Christianity was brought to Rus by by monks predominantly, by clergymen, who themselves uh, hated uh, the mm, very important part of their own Byzantine Greek culture, that is secular culture, because Byzantium had an extremely rich secular culture and secular literature, which was um, very much uh, very much modeled after pagan ancient models. So in Byzantium, these two layers coexisted. But in Rus, there was, for all practical purposes, no secular literature whatsoever. So um, Rus, from the very beginning, 
um, perceived literature as something very solemn and uh, much more mm, serious, I would say, than uh, it, it was never uh, something for entertainment. It was only for spiritual benefit. Um, and it's very important. So this is one thing. Another thing is that um, in the absence of the idea of literature as something um, something technical, something uh, if you if you prefer uh, something like belletter, the the system of genres of the Byzantine literature uh, inevitably inevitably changed a lot because the Slavs uh, did not um, did not grasp the peculiarities of, of genres. They were reading uh, translated Greek texts, not always like uh, their Greek teachers would like them to do. So they were quite inexperienced in uh, understanding um, complicated literature. Therefore, they always uh, preferred to choose more simple texts, more uh, more down-to-earth texts, and abhorred um, more abstract and difficult ones. As you know, Roman writers often modelled their texts on the great writers of old, making allusions that only the well-read would understand or using antiquated terminology to display their erudition. As Professor Ivanov explained, Byzantine writers also used different genres to demonstrate their skill set, which, read out of context, might confuse the uninitiated. Despite these physical and cultural differences, Constantinople maintained a strong presence in Rus' religious life. I asked Professor Ivanov to elaborate on this by asking whether the relationship had similarities to Catholic Christians and Rome. Uh, yes, uh, the, the difference is that all Catholics uh, were supposed to know Latin, whereas Slavs were not supposed to, to know to know Greek, especially in Rus. Yes, Constantinople was the center of gravity in all dimensions, and of course, uh, first and foremost, in spiritual one, because mm, the patriarch of Constantinople was appointing uh, metropolitans and bishops to, to Rus for many centuries. So uh, the, uh, the princes, um, feuding princes of Rus, of divided Rus, were always appealing to um, to the patriarch, to patriarch, asking that uh, metropolitans would be seated in their capitals, not in the capitals of their rivals, for example. That's why, um, of course, uh, as a uh, so-called so bottle holder, the the patriarch was the, a, a key figure in the inner politics of uh, of Rus princedoms. Yes, Constantinople was extremely important. After the 1050s, the Rus were never again ruled directly from Kiev. The trading towns of the Russian river systems were hard to control centrally, so princes competed for influence from various strong points. Polotsk, Smolensk, Novgorod, Chernigov, and so on. This decentralized political system allowed the Byzantine patriarch to retain a surprising level of control over ecclesiastical life. 
Constantinople continued to appoint bishops across the Rus world all the way into the 15th century. There was always a degree of negotiation, and local men were promoted, but fairly often the senior Rus bishop would be a Roman, dispatched by Constantinople. This bishop and his clergy would play a leading role in Rus political life, often stepping in to try and end disputes between the princes. I asked Professor Ivanov whether this influence declined as the Byzantine Empire's own power began to fail. Uh, the, the, I would say that the influence of, uh, of, um, of the Patriarch was uh, uncomfortably higher than his, uh, the, the real might of the Byzantine Emperor. Um, for example, in the, 14, in the middle of the 14th century, after an earthquake, um, the, uh, the dome of St. Sophia collapsed in Constantinople, uh, and it was restored uh, with the use of uh, money of the Moscow, Moscow prince. Mm. Uh, so Moscow prince was uh, was much more rich, uh, rich potentate than uh, the emperor himself. But at the same time, uh, Moscow was extremely um, dependent on on the patriarch in um, in he, in their relations with the uh, with the competitors uh, within Rus. So still, still the patriarch had the last, the last say. There's an interesting interplay here. The Serbs and Bulgarians, fearing political domination, fought hard for their bishops to be independent of Constantinople, whereas the Rus, who had no fear of Byzantine political interference because of the distance uh, physically between them, were happy to allow Byzantine clergy to play an influential part in their society right up until 1453. I asked Professor Ivanov what the reaction was in the Rus world to the fall of Constantinople to the Turks. Yes, it was perceived as a tragedy, of course, and uh, many texts, lamentations were written about it. Mm, yet uh, some, some years before the fall of Constantinople, uh, the great prince of Moscow, uh, forbade forbade to mention the name of the emperor during the liturgy in in Moscow, and it, it caused it caused uh, in great indignation from the part of the patriarch who wrote uh, to the great prince uh, a letter explaining to him that uh, a, ch a church and the states are inseparable. And state state meaning, of course, the empire of Constantinople are inseparable from it, from each other and so the emperor should be mentioned um, in the blessing in the bless, blessing sayings um, whatever happens to, uh, to to the emperor himself um, but uh, still of course uh, the fall of constantinople was was uh, was perceived as as this, i would say as something co cosmic a cosmic catastrophe the Rus world had changed considerably by 1453. The Mongols had subjugated the princes for centuries, and Moscow had emerged as the new centre of power in the region. I imagine most of you have heard of the concept of Moscow emerging as the third Rome. First Rome, then Constantinople, now Moscow. 
This idea was put forward by a monk named Philophy from Pskov, and I asked Professor Ivanov about it. Uh, yes, uh, this idea and this wording in Moscow, the Third Rome, was coined by a monk from Pskov, from the city of Pskov. Um, uh, his name was Philophie, um and uh, his idea was of um, eschatological kind. So it's not by chance that he did not write that Moscow is the second Constantinople. No, he wrote that Moscow is the third Rome. Uh, so it has to do with the um, concept very, very widely spread in the Middle Ages of the translatio imperii, of the moving of, an, of the empire. The empire is only one in the world, so it was first Rome, then Constantinople, and then Moscow. But um, whoever reads these texts um, cannot but be amazed at how little Philophie is speaking about Constantinople proper. He's speaking all the time of, of the Rome, of, of Italian Rome. He, he, he's thrilled with the grandeur of this great city, which fell to heretics, but still is a great city. So his, his idea is not that the Moscovite Tsar should become Byzantine emperor. His idea is that the spiritual, spiritual center, uh, which moved first from Rome to Constantinople, is now inevitably moving to, to Moscow. But it's not, it was not a, a political program, I would say. It had nothing to do with the idea of, uh, for example, liberating Constantinople from the Turkish yoke. No, it was not. The original concept of Moscow as the Third Rome was an apocalyptic one. The monk Philophy was seeing the fall of Constantinople as a signal of the end times and formulating the idea that Moscow would become the new centre of true Christianity. This didn't stop some, though, from picking up this idea and interpreting it in a political sense. You will be surprised. It was used, it was used at the end of the 16th century uh, during the negotiations with the uh, Oriental patriarchs, the patriarchs of Antioch, Alex Alexandria and Jerusalem, um, about granting the patriarchal status uh, to the Moscovite metropolitan. Uh, during these negotiations, by the Tsar Boris Godunov. Um, he was not yet a Tsar by that moment. Uh, Fyodor Ivanovich was the Tsar, but the, the, key, the key figure of Moscovite politics was Boris Godunov. So he was a cunning politician, and he really exploited this slogan, Moscow Third Room, to somehow to secure the position, the independence of the Moscow metro Metropolitan which turned to be patriarch. But then this slogan was completely forgotten and um, was uh, somehow uh, resurfaced only in the middle of the 19th century as the slogan of the newly born 
mm, Russian imperialism when the uh, idea of conquering uh, Istanbul uh, became real. During the wars with the the fading during the, Ottoman during Empire, the Crimea, during the Crimean yes. War, and ever since, and ever since, it was it was very popular and still is very popular um, as a um, as a slogan of of Russian imperialism. Yes. With Byzantium gone, Russia now moved to its own rhythms. I've put up a link at thehistoryofbyzantium.com to a public lecture which Professor Ivanov gave, which charted the history of the subject of Byzantium in Russian cultural and public life. As you can imagine, given the change which Russia has seen in the last few centuries, the reception of Byzantium has changed considerably under different moods and regimes. Moving to today... I asked Professor Ivanov to tell us a little about how Byzantium is understood in Russia in 2021. Uh, Byzantium is uh, uh, began began uh, gaining popularity at the turn of the millennium um, when it became uh, more or less clear that the liberal reforms are ending in a failure in Russia. So uh, Russian people were at a loss uh, uh, from the point of view of the uh, world outlook, so to say, because um, after the failure of communism and after the failure of the, of the liberal reforms, so there was no solid, solid ground, so to say. And uh, many people found this mythical solid ground in Byzantium. Um, for in 2008, it was a very popular uh, documentary film, uh, The Fall of an Empire, a Byzantine Lesson, um, which was made by a cleric, uh, um, cleric who is reputed to be um, President Putin's father of confessions. Um, nobody knows if it's true, but there are uh, rumors have it. Um, so, uh, and it was hugely popular. Uh, it's, it's, this film is imbued with um, senseless distortions of history. It's very rude from, from historical point of view, but it was extremely popular by then. <coughs> Since then, uh, Byzantium uh, resurfaced once again after the annexation of Crimea. Uh, because uh, the the main idea was that we uh, we re, uh, return to our spiritual uh, cradle, which is Kersonesis in Crimea, because Prince Vladimir got baptized there. Mm, uh, it was once again uh, um, an outburst of of interest in Byzantium for a short while. Then uh, this interest began to gradually to fade away but in general i would say if you if you ask a person in the street uh, he would probably say that yes we 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 russians come from byzantium this is our spiritual motherland yes that's interesting and and would that be taught in schools in in normal history classes mm, no no i would say that uh, the school textbooks are very conservative, and they, uh, I would say they, they draw more or less reliable 
well-balanced picture as yet. Maybe they will be rewritten soon, but uh, for now, I am not. I am not irritated when I read <laughs> this <laughs> this textbooks. Um, but uh, but in in propaganda, uh, Byzantium is very much present. Yes. And and are there serious academics who who use a political line when discussing Byzantium? Um, well, yes, there are some, but um, I'm proud to say that serious Byzantinists do not play these games. Um, and even when um, a special Byzantine club was organized by some very high-ranking high, high officials in Kremlin, um, when uh, senior Byzantinists were invited, they tried to introduce um, some, well, balanced, so to say, balanced approaches uh, to, to the... Uh, to the um, uh, nonsense that the officials were professing. Um, no, I, I, I was not blushing. I was not <laughs> blushing at uh, listening to them. Um, of course, there is a lot of amateurs who are writing. Uh, for, ex- for example, um, one of the uh, one of the heads of the penitentiary system in Russia, a general, uh, after after he was fired, fired for. For bribes uh, from his position, he became Byzantinist and wrote hundreds of books about Byzantium. Um, of course, of course, absolutely amateurish. So such people are numerous, and probably, probably, the, the such such books uh, can can enjoy some some success. But um, I would say that serious books about Byzantium are. Also meeting, also met with with considerable degree of, of of interest from the reading public. That's very good to hear, and we're very grateful to you for being one of the scholars who is doing good work on on the truth of uh, history with Byzantium. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I, I was not fishing for compliments. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will be um, sending listeners to. Um, the Higher School of Economics website if they want to find out more about you. And I'm, I'm pleased to say there are a number of articles and book chapters that have been translated into English that most of the listeners won't be able to read in the original Russian. And your book, Holy Fools in Byzantium and Beyond, has been translated fully into English, which is excellent. Um, are there any other books in this area, you would recommend for people who are sort of pre-undergraduates? Oh well, uh, in English, a lot is being written. Yes, uh, many of these books are being translated into Russian very quickly. Um, but I, I must add that uh, another book of mine um, on on Byzantine religious missions was also translated translated into into English and published uh, in Paris in. Uh, 2015 under the title of uh, Pearls Bef- Before Swine, um, the missionary work in Byzantium. Um, I, um, I authored also a book for general public and 
I don't understand why I offered. I have I have a, an English translation of this book uh, made not by me, but but by by a native speaker of English. Uh, it's um, it's entitled uh, "In Search of Constantinople: A Guidebook Through Byzantine Istanbul." Uh, it was translated into Bulgarian. It was translated into Serbian. Into it was translated into Turkish language, but nobody, nobody got, nobody among the publishers got interested in in publishing the English version of this guidebook. Although I think it's not only entertaining, but it's useful for for understanding Byzantium. Well, I would be very interested to read it as. Uh... We have led tours to Istanbul to visit the remaining Byzantine sites. Um, and uh, it's uh, partly through the chronicles of Russian travelers that we know uh, much about late Byzantium, which uh, is another connection. Yes. So I'll put up a link as well to Pearls Before Swine, which will take people through the, the whole the whole history of Byzantine relationship to missionary work. And... Um, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's the strange uh, dichotomy of, of them having such enormous influence on converting the Rus and others, but without uh, really <laughs> organizing for the missionary work to happen. Yes, absolutely. Yes, they wanted to preserve their their Christianity for themselves, more or less. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, Professor Ivanov, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 